Sarah, do you have walk-up music prepared for this event? <laughs> so when we first, first, first started dating, Eric, um, because as you, as many of our listeners know, Eric, maybe they don't know, Eric puts all the musical interstitials, like all the little interludes that are in every episode, they're Eric's, con- in Eric's domain. Jen and I sometimes make requests and they get fully denied. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe next time. Maybe when you have better taste in music is, I think, what that means. <laughs> um, I'm okay with it. So anyway, so Eric's a musician, you know, trained musician. And uh, he, when we first started dating, like, music, obviously, when you first start dating a musician, like, there's a lot of music testing that goes on. And I failed basically every one of those tests because I like like the bare naked ladies and it's his greatest shame like he's like we're going to this party don't tell anyone you like the bare naked ladies this is this is Daryl and me but with like movies okay right where he's like you've never seen and I'm like no that sounds like cinema and no I haven't (laughs) does a handsome man blow something up then no I'm sorry um we have the same experience with cinema i like to put the accent right over the a um anyway so early early days we had this discussion of like what would be your like walk-in music if you like could just choose your soundtrack and my answer and it was approved by eric i think it might have been like the first time i ever answered a music question correctly Um, my answer was george michael's too funky Do you remember that song? Nope. You will. I bet it'll get played. (laughs) I actually do have walk-up music because at middle school assemblies, when I do a book talk, there's like walk-up music while I'm coming up. Yeah, yeah. And my walk-up music is Every Day I Write the Book by Elvis Costello. Oh, that's perfect. See, that's perfect. Yes, it's thematic walk-up music. It's good. And so did you get to choose it or did somebody bestow this upon No, I, I got to choose. I got to choose. So oh, like the nice. other, like when this first started happening, the librarian did a lot of book talking and he would play. Madam Librarian. And he would, um, instead, he, her name actually had the same number of syllables as librarian. And uh, he sang over it like her name. And he's real tone deaf, so it was, and I mean that in like the actual sense of the word. Like, so he would like sing, and he'd be like a vacuum cleaner saying her name. It was so. (laughs) So he's like, "Do you want some walk-up music?" And I was like, "Yeah, why don't you let me pick?" Uh And I and you made sure there was no way he could add a yeah and add your name to it. As disclosed in our bet me episode, I'm a big Elvis Costello fan. So yes, well that's perfect. I mean. Ideally, the most on-the-nose walk-up music for this particular episode would be the Beatles' Paperback Writer. But we don't know. We don't know what it'll be. We don't know. (laughs) We're going to find out. (laughs) It'll be a mystery to everyone. (laughs) <laughs> It'll be some obscure musical choice that only Eric will know, and then he'll put it on our Spotify playlist, and people will know. Exactly. If you're not listening to our Spotify playlist, you should. There's a link to it on our website, FadedMates.net. It's amazing. There, we've done it. <laughs> Welcome to Faded Mates, everyone. I'm Jennifer Prokop. I'm a romance reader and critic, and I have with me today a special guest. Sometimes she's my co-host, but today I'm going to interview her because it's amazing and something exciting and special is happening. Tell us about it, Sarah. Well, I'm Sarah McLean, and I guess today I write romance novels. That's right. That's all you do today. That's all I do today. Um, Sometimes I read them too, though. Uh, And I wrote a book that came out yesterday. That's right. Daring and the Duke. Daring and the Duke. And I also just, you know, this morning I was walking the dog and I thought to myself, you know, Jen and I, I feel like... Everybody might be very surprised to know that you and I actually don't talk about my books very much. Like, That's true. We don't talk about the process. We don't talk about, like, we don't do this ever. Right. right. So, which I will admit to you, Sarah, I feel like is the next phase in our friendship. Oh, God. And if I ever get to that stage, then I will know I'm the real deal. <laughs> 
No, I'm kidding. Sometimes, I mean, mainly you do get the texts that are like, oh, this book is never ending. Yeah. You know what, though? I, I feel like I also get it. I'm a critic, not a fellow writer. Like, you need the writer's room at those moments. I understand that I'm a, I'm a good for the back end. Well, it also, like, it feels weird to, you know, ask you, like, hey, did that scene work for you in a, you know, I, it's a different kind of experience when you have a friend reading your book. Yeah, for sure. But in this case, you're not my friend. You're my, you're like Terry Gross. I am like Terry. I'm going to be your biographer one day. You never know. (laughs) The new skill I'm going to pick up. Uh, I am like Terry Gross. I actually have been practicing my critiquing skills. That's one of my summer projects. So, yeah, I feel pretty good about it. Okay, so Sarah... Let's launch right into it. I I have some amazing questions. I'm so excited about it. Thanks so much for having me. I'm a longtime listener. (laughs) I really love this show. (laughs) Last time we had you on, you are, right? Like, I love, that's my favorite thing. And then they, like, go back to the archives. Because Terry Gross's archives are pretty extensive. Terry Gross goes deep, yes. That's, can I tell you, I'm putting it into the universe because 2020 is wild. So why not? Mm -hmm. My, like, dream is to be on Fresh Air. I would like us to be interviewed somewhere together, and I realize that's never going to happen. You're going to be on Fresh Air, and you can just mention me. <laughs> but I was like, I would like us to be somewhere maybe a little less rare. you want to come and hang out in the studio? Obviously, I do. Yeah, and um, if anybody wants to interview us, uh, uh, you know, Maureen Lenker from Entertainment Weekly, say... <clears throat> <laughs> Um, with Jen and I are free, and we're really a delightful interview, I think. Yeah, we were on that library interview, and I thought it was great. It was great. You guys, we did a library interview. It's going to go up in uh, one of our weeks off, so you can listen to it. I have had some, I, I have some secret goals, too, but I'm still figuring out what they are. One of them didn't come true, and I didn't put it into the universe. Don't put it into the universe yet. Put them into the universe when you're ready. I'm ready for Terry Gross to call. Really, this week would work fine for me. Okay. <laughs> Somebody let her know. Somebody we know has to know Terry Gross. Sarah. Oh, God, this book. First of all, readers, this book is really spectacular. Now, I will say we're going to talk about the book generally. There will be some spoilers. We're kind of going to save those maybe to the end. And I'll sort of, like, tag that a little bit. But the book came out yesterday. So, obviously, you all pulled all-nighters listening. I mean, clearly it. everybody's read it. <laughs> say if you are a person who doesn't like spoilers you might want to wait to listen to this whole thing until that happens so um before we one of the like ways i want to frame this conversation is you know and our listeners do that i've been listening to a podcast called hit parade with chris melanthi and he has introduced me to this phrase called the imperial period which i am obsessed with and i think that you are in your imperial period we're gonna talk about why later such a weird thing to hear about yourself but it's okay and basically (laughs) what it means at its core is like you're at your commercial and creative peak sort of simultaneously right and it means that you get to take bigger risks as a writer because I think that although I see a lot of like the bones of a Sarah McLean novel in this book there are some ways that it's like a risk for you too so how does that feel for you as a writer to be pushing yourself through through a book my biggest failing I think as a commercial writer is that I get really bored with myself so I think um, particularly in genre, but, but you know, branding is so important, right? Like you said, mm-hmm. a Sarah McLean novel. And that's really important. And I think it's incredibly difficult for writers to sort of throw a brand out the window and maintain some sort of commercial success, honestly. Um, and so, you know, we can name... A dozen, I mean, we can, in romance, you can name, you know, a hundred writers who have really just nailed that brand so well. I mean, like, think about Cressley, right? Like, Mm -hmm. we were able to do a podcast about Immortals After Dark because Cressley's and and also the, you know, Mafia series and her historicals, too, um, because Cressley's brand is so strong. Right. And I think... um, my brand, like, I think people can read a book by me and know that it's by me. And that's, you know, there is a sort of brand, a, a Sarah McLean brand. 
But for me, the way that I decide on a new series idea or a new book idea uh, or the plot of a book is thinking, usually if I think to myself, oh, no, I can't do that. I can't pull that off. If I think I can't pull that off, then it, that's usually the idea I choose. Mm-hmm. And that sometimes works and sometimes doesn't. But, um, you know, I'm very lucky in that it seems like usually readers are willing to come along with me. I certainly know I know that there there's there's a situation with a lot of readers and me um, where, you know, some of my books really work for them and some of them maybe don't work as well. But they're sort of willing to go through the ones that they that don't work as well because the ones that work really work for them. Right. Um, And so that's maybe the benefit of it. I'll dig into something in particular that I think is like a like a real risk in the book. But mm. before we do that, like you talked about sort of like pitching a series, right? And so you're at that, you know, like you this started out as an idea and now you're at the end of it. And I think readers are probably really curious about like how much of the original plan kind of carried through to the end. Were there things that surprised you? Yeah, so I know we're going to talk about spoilers at the end of the book, so I'm not going to be very like clear about it, but... When I conceive of a series, I can't really, it doesn't solidify my head without me knowing the last kind of low moment of the Mm. whole series. So, for example, this is not a spoiler for people who have read my casino series, but I knew that at the end of that casino series, Chase's... Um, identity was going to have to be like really threatened and on the line. Yeah. And so I knew that it would be on the floor of the casino and I knew that ultimately West, her her hero and all the other um, scoundrels were going to have to take like essentially claim Chase's identity for themselves in order to protect her. Right. Um, and I knew that there would be a gunshot and I like I knew a fair number of things. I knew at the end of the last series, you know, I started that series with um, Sarah and Mal with, um, you know, the Duke of Haven on page have like being unfaithful mm-hmm. to Serafina, his wife. And I knew that the end of that whole series would be him giving her a divorce in front of Parliament. Right. Like I knew that before I knew what the story of Sophie and King was. Yeah. Um, so when I pitched the Bare Knuckle Bastards to my editor, I knew the childhood sort of trauma, the childhood story that they had all suffered together. And I knew the climactic scene of this book. Yeah. And what happens in that scene. And I knew what um, I knew. I have to sort of think carefully, but I knew what Ewan would have to give up in order to have a happily ever after. And then the entire series was moving toward this moment. And there are breadcrumbs through the first two books. Once you've read this book and then you go back and you read Wallflower and Brazen, you'll see that uh, it's all it was all there. It's all there all along. Right. Right. Which maybe in a couple weeks when people really have a chance to read it, like I can like sort of dig some of those out on Twitter. It'd be really interesting to like talk about like how that, you know, I use a a metaphor with my students a lot about how authors are like chefs, which is ironic because I don't like cooking. Mm. But what I say is like, you know, you go into a restaurant and I actually, they don't know it's you, but I talk about you and I'm like, my friend Sarah loves cooking. And if we went into a restaurant together she would be able to say, like, oh, there's a hint of rosemary in here. And mm-hmm. I would be like, whatever, just tastes good, right? And you're, in this case, like, like the richness of your of your books is something you don't have to necessarily, like, pick through. You can just tell it's a delicious meal. But there's a lot of fun in also, like, being able to identify all that. My f- favorite thing as a reader is reading, you know, writers who I've loved a long romance writers who I've loved a long time and seeing all the little Easter eggs from the other books. Um, Not just seeing a couple kind of dance by at a ball, but also, you know, knowing what that reference when somebody sort of is talking about a a major scandal from the past, like knowing the reference makes you feel like you're in the club. And so for me, that's always been just a fun little game that I can play with readers because it's a game I love as a reader. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that actually there there is a... It's not easy necessarily, though, to 
to write the way that I write and to be a reader of me <laughs> because I do think the I think for example daring is better for having read Wallflower and Beast and that's kind of breaking a big rule of publishing right like right paranormals are allowed to be a series but you know contemporaries and historicals really should stand alone and this I think does stand alone it just it's much more, like you said, it's a much more satisfying read if you've read the others. With this book, especially something about, like, the introduction of, like, the other women who are at her brothel, right? Like, Natasha, like, you get, we get the return of, like, the of Ralston's mistress. I was going to say, you know who that is, right? right? We know who that <laughs> is. And... And I was thinking that, you know, it's a, a we don't often think of, like you said, like world building outside of paranormal. But like you're at the point where I feel like you've got like sort of the Sarah McLean omniverse yeah. going. Right. And one of the things I think is really interesting about this is because I went back and looked at the timeline. Um, the number series is 1823. The casino series really is driven by the timing of Chase's story. It has to be right. So that's 1833, and then we get Scandal and Scoundrel and Bare Knuckle Bastards are actually pretty tight, like the the 1833 to 1838. And Well, all the characters overlap. So the Sophie is in Never Judge a Lady by her cover, and then the Bare Knuckle Bastards are in Daring, uh, Day of the Duchess, and Hell's Bells is in Daring. That first series of yours, it, you know, it was your first series. You were, It's really like a Mayfair ballroom series. Yeah. But... I don't know that I read your books in order. I think I might have read Scandal and Scoundrels before the Casino series. And it must have been, like, really jarring for your fans to be like, wait, she just dug out this whole underworld, right? Like, there's something underneath all of that. And what's really interesting about that is the way in which you have pulled, like, there's a point at which we see Juliana, like, at the at the casino, right? And the other side. Mm -hmm. So... What do you think that does for you to essentially, like, provide a darker backstory to, like, that first kind of glittering, not darker, but I don't know. No, no, no. It is darker. Yeah. It's dark. I mean, of it course is. it is. Um, because, look, my whole, my, the trajectory of my career has been from, like, glittering ballrooms. Like, look, Nine Rules to Break is the romance novel that I wanted to read when I was 25 years old. And it is, and it's probably the, it's the romance novel that, I mean, I really do believe that your first romance, it's not my first book, but it is my first romance. And, um, and I, I carved it out of my id. Of course. You know, like, I mean, it was twins and, you know, tw <laughs> handsome twin heroes. One of them is scarred, like a, a fat heroine, uh, you know, like who's a spinster. Like she yes. wears a lace cap. She has a perfect sister. Like kind of it had all this. There's a duel. There's, I mean, nine rules. Yeah. The conceit is here are the nine things that you love watching in romance novels. Yeah. Like, and I. I wish I could say then, like, oh, I'm going to craft a story that's about the nine things you love watching in romance novels. I didn't. I just wrote a book, and then I was like, oh, my God. Now, looking back, I'm like, oh, my God. Like, I wrote the tropiest, trope-tastic romance novel ever. And, like, thank goodness, because it actually sort of established me. You know, we talk—I think you've heard me say this. Like, Nine Rules was really—it came out. Borders was still around, Ebooks hadn't really become a huge thing. Like it, it's my career was built. It's like one of the last romance careers built on print books on shelves in stores. And I think part of why Nine Rules was such a success is because it was so tropey. And now we see that happening over and over again in um, digital and and indie. Um, books, you know, now you just have to open Twitter and it's like those bulleted lists of tropes are everywhere. So nine kind of was carved out of my id. When I sold nine to HarperCollins, I don't think I've told this story um, on the podcast and I apologize if there are repeats, but um, HarperCollins said, we want the book. And I was like, great. And they were like, we want three. And I was like, but I don't have three. <laughs> like I have one. And it had never occurred to me that they would want three. And then my editor, Carrie, was like, no, but you, they're here. Like, you, you're you yeah. going to give us the sister and the brother. And I was like, oh, I am. <laughs> you know, so, so in those early days, I mean, so Nastasia was there, mm -hmm. Ralston's mistress, 
Hebert, Madame Hebert, the dressmaker, was there in those early days. And then there was Freddie Stanhope, who was a pull-through from from the YA that I wrote. Oh, interesting. I don't think I knew that. And um, and then it was sort of it, it marked. So those were the three kind of cornerstone back characters, background characters. And then, you know, I wrote Nick and Isabel and then Simon and Juliana sort of made sense. Mm-hmm. And then that was when Simon and Juliana, like, I still think that Eleven Scandals was a sea change moment for me as a writer. Like the the first two books are something are like test books almost for me. And then like. I really, like, Juliana and Simon sort of started moving me toward this other world, this, like, what I think is more interesting, like, away from ballrooms, even though there are a lot, like, nobody's perfect in Eleven Scandals in the way that there's perfection in the others, even though, like, Isabel, you know, that's a difference. That book really is an outlier, I think, too. Um, But the, anyway, so then, um, and then it was just sort of into the casino, and I, the casino, I did tell you guys, I have said this when we did the J.R. Ward episode, like the casino was born out of me reading uh, Black Dagger Brotherhood. I feel like sometimes you can see like a character, you as an author, like working with a character, like right, the wallflower progresses in a way. Mm. And I feel like in some ways, Grace comes out of the Georgiana kind of McLean heroine, right? And so when you say Eleven was a, Eleven was a game changer, right? That's where we meet her for the first time. Yeah, And I think the difference is anger. (laughs) I think the difference is anger. I think there's a lot of, um, I think the world, you know, how many times have you and I said, like, romance iterates the world we live in? Like, the world we live in now is very different than the world we lived in in 2010. Yep. Um, And so so the heroines have changed. I think age is certainly Mm -hmm. a piece of the puzzle. Like, um, I would also say, like... um, I think Georgina, no, I think Juliana, and then, of course, Georgina. Like, Georgina's whole story, it's five books long. And nobody knows that until they get to the fifth book, and they're like, oh, shit. (laughs) Yeah, right. right. (laughs) Um, So, like, it's a long con for me. And and readers didn't know what was happening. Um, And I think that starting to think, and that was really the moment. I mean, I knew, I knew in... Again, talking about like breadcrumbs already being on the on the page in Eleven Scandals, Georgina says to Simon at the end, like, I already have an idea for how you can pay me back. Yeah. And like, it's right there. Like, that's the seed money for the casino on the page. Mm-hmm. Um, I get a lot of joy out of surprising readers. Like, yeah. I get a lot of joy about the twist of about twists at the end. I get a lot of joy from can she pull this off? Yeah. Like, um. It's terrifying to write that, but, like, there was a lot of joy in Hunting Grace. Hunting game. Yeah, in Grace and Ewan being out in the world right now because I know there are, like, th- literal thousands of people who are like, how How's she gonna is do she going right. to pull this off? Yeah. Um, and, you know, of course you send it out into the world with, like, your fingers crossed and you're just sort of like... I hope it works. Hope I did. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but, like, that's how I felt about Day of the Duchess, too. Like, how, like, I broke a huge rule. I mean, arguably, Mal is, a, Haven breaks a larger romance rule than Ewan does, ironically. Yeah. These romance rules are, like, Ewan actually kills people, but, like, that's forgivable in some way in romance, in a way that, like, cheating on your wife. Is not. Right. No. And I know that there are readers who just won't read Day of the Duchess because... Cheating is off the table for them, and that's reasonable. One of the things that I think this book really, like, daring, I mean, explicitly really, like, kind of digs into, and maybe it's, it certainly Chase's story as well, it's, it's, it's Lily's story is, there's a way in which I'm really fascinated by terrible things happen to women. Yeah. I mean, Grace literally doesn't have a name. Her, everything is stolen from her. She's, she's not just like voiceless right i mean she's like identityless and yet the the way we're socialized to sort of like come up with coping mechanisms for that destruction that though that's creative whereas men destroy and i feel like i'm really interested in like what you what you as an author are trying to say maybe about like how women's rage and anger and betrayal like manifests itself i think the 
best work that romance can do for me as a reader and a writer is put women's pain and rage on the table and identify it and its source. Mm -hmm. Patriarchy makes me so angry and it's making me so angry as I get older and as I, you know, look at women around me being, you know, continuing all women, um, you know, women of color, queer women, trans women, all women, just the way that patriarchy just beats us all down yeah, and, and works in so many insidious ways to crush us and how amazing it is that women survive and triumph. Right. That, and I, you know, Adriana Herrera and I were on a panel a few weeks ago and we were talking about politics and romance and how, you know, society, like how revolution is represented in romance. And, you know, one of the things I keep coming back to is like these, these writers who, you know, Rebecca Traster is good and mad and Mona Eltahawe's The Seven Necessary Sins of Women and Girls, the way that women's rage actually is essential to transforming society. Um, and I think about, like, the uh, Black Suffragette anthology that Alyssa Cole and Alina Hart and Piper Hewley were a part of. Mm-hmm. And the stories that get told constantly are, like, Beverly Jenkins's you know, reconstruction stories where it's about women's work that, like, without women, we don't have revolution. Yeah. And so I think, but I don't think, and I don't, I don't think I write revolution stories, but I think that people like, I think characters like uh, Georgina and Grace and, you know, Sarah, to a certain extent, are angry. And mm-hmm. their anger, through their anger, they make change. Like, they bang against the wall until it comes down. And I think Grace is really interesting, though, because I think she recognizes how she's keenly aware. Like, it's, yes, this is also a you know, a little bit of a spoiler, which maybe we'll talk about later, but, like, she, by the end of this book, like, Grace is actually, like, articulating to you and, like, this is the world for me. And I think that's a lot of work that women are doing right now. I think we're all kind of, I mean, I don't know. I'm, I certainly over the last couple of years have looked at my husband on a number of, a number of times and said, like, this is the world for us. Like, that's about Elizabeth Warren being a woman, not about, you know, her being too smart. And a, a third book I would add to that, like Good and Mad and Seven Necessary Sins, is Mickey Kendall's Hood Feminism, yes. right? Yes, So it's, like, really, like, naming that. But w- so I want to kind of return now to, like, a, a big risk I thought you took with this book, like, sort of that. And that is that the book begin begins, it's very early in the book, with an actual physical fight. Yeah. And I... It, and not only because it happens, but because of where it happens. I want to talk about Grace's, like, transformation that you just named from, like, physical fighting, right? She's one of the bare-knuckle bastards, people don't realize that, to, like, something else. Yeah, so um, Grace is actually, so I want to I wanna hit this hard, this nail hard, Jen, because I think people will think that I made this up, and I don't. I want to clarify this. No, no. In the 1700s and early 1800s, and probably earlier, but, you know, their children were fighters, were in in places like Covent Garden and other kind of, um, you know, uh, other places in in all over the world, I'm sure, but in London. um, Specifically, there were a number of children who were used, literally, like if you were a big kid, like a... A kid who was tall or a kid who looked strong or a kid who could fight, um, you could make money. I mean, essentially, like, there were fight, there were people who ran fight rings. Mm-hmm. Um, and boys and girls both were thrown in the ring. And it, they were like, I mean, it was like dog fighting. Like, you, yeah. would, you would send two kids into the ring and one of them would emerge. And, like, people would bet on them. I'm sort of floored that people don't get this i mean this is we put children in factories all day why wouldn't you know what i mean <laughs> yeah and girls were girls those of you who have seen young girls um often girls are taller mm-hmm. um and so they were good fighters yeah. like um and you could you could fight girls with boys and they and they would triumph there was no you know it was sort of a much more even yeah. even ground um 
and I got really interested in it. I actually, um, I read a really fabulous book, a, 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 a novel called A Fair Fight, um, that's set in the 1700s. And I was like, oh, this is so great. And this was years and years ago I read this book, and it's you know terrific, but historical, just a historical fiction, historical novel. Um, and then I was like, oh, I want to I want to learn more about these bare knuckle fighter fighting kids. And so I started learning about like how the system works. And obviously it's terrible. Um, but the bare knuckle bastards are called that because they came they turned up in London as orphans and they fought for food and mm-hmm. like then power. And then they like climbed the rings. And this is all sort of plausible. And right. there's nothing fantastical about this part of the story. There is fantastical stuff. I mean, they were all born at the same time. Sure. Same day, same hour, same minute. Right. right. Like to different women. Like that's weird. <laughs> <laughs> but like this part isn't fantastical. So anyway, um, so Grace was a good fighter. And also girls made more money than boys in these early um, rings because people like to watch girls fight. Terrible. Terrible. But you know, real. Um, and so, but then as they got stronger, they knew they didn't have to. Like, the goal is to get yourself out of these situations and to become the head, right? right? Um, but, of course, they didn't run fight rings for kids. They, you know, they, some of them run, they certainly run fight, fight rings for fighters, like grown adults who'd make a choice to fight. Um, anyway, so, but there's a fight ring at the, at the bottom of 72 Shelton, which is Grace's Club. Yeah. And uh, the fight that you are referring to happens down there in mm-hmm. the sawdust, in the ring, in an empty ring. And it's the first time Grace has fought in, in years. years. And Devil and Beast are a there. real interesting presence in this book. Like, they're, like, these, like, almost like Statler and Waldorf. Like, they're, like, constantly, like, <laughs> we know it's going to fucking... It's all... Right? But they're there, and they... They let her, not they let her fight. I right? think they we res- can spoil this part. It's yeah. pretty early in the book. It's so very early. Yeah. Um, Ewan is, we know if you've read, if you've read Bar- uh, Brazen and the Beast, you know that Ewan's been blown up. Right. Um, and rescued, quote, rescued. <laughs> He's been taken to 72 Shelton Grace's Club. Um, and it becomes clear right in the first chapter of, or second chapter of Daring that Grace has healed him, like has been healing him. And then he wakes up and he rips the door off a hinge, which generally likes. <laughs> of course I did. I like, um, Hi, Malcolm. <laughs> and then he gets taken down by her guards and brought to the fight ring and where she faces him for the first time in 20 years. And she wraps her knuckles mm-hmm. and she fights him. And I was real scared of that scene. Well, this is back to the imperial period question, yeah. right? Because I was really scared about writing that scene. Not only would I imagine it's like a craft issue with something risky for you, right? Like taking the finger, but it's also a place where you could like you lose a reader, right? So yep. can you do it well and can you keep people on board through this? Yeah. I think um, the fear of that scene is very much, um, I, is gendered. Uh, they're a lot gendered um, in the sense that, like, if this were one of the other books and it were, say, Wit fighting you in. No, no, problem. not a problem. Right. But Grace says in, I think, Wallflower, she says, like, he's mine. He took the most from me. And so they sort and so the which is how as uh, it's it's a writing trick, right? Like, it's how I kept you in on page. Mm hmm. Without, like, it was a heroic act for Devil and Wit to not harm Ewan, harm right. Ewan, right? Like, they wanted it, but they were leaving it in an act of nobility for Grace. And this this is her chance, right? Yeah. To harm him, to hurt him, to hurt him the way that he hurt her. Of course, that's not possible, right? Um, so they have this battle. Well, the most devastating punch she lands in that fight is a verbal blow, though. Because she realizes that he's in it. So, I mean, I'll spoil this part, too, but um, he refuses to fight back, right? He takes every punch she gives him, and he, she sets him down. Like, she sets him into the yeah. sawdust because she's strong. And she's a weapon, uh, you know, that she's good at using, <laughs> that she's an expert with. and the, But ultimately, like, she's furious. His blow is not letting her is not giving her the fight right 
And so ultimately she has to use a different tool, which is, sure. you know, telling him that he killed her. Yeah. I'm really dead. Yeah. You killed the, you killed, killed the girl you loved. And it's funny because you remember when we talked about Brace and the Beast, I talked about like the knots, Felicity's locks and Hattie's knots and what would Grace's weapon be? Yeah. And it's really interesting that it's a scarf, right? Because it's like this, it looks like something feminine, but it's really yeah. deadly there, right? Underneath. Yeah. Um, the thing about, okay, I'm trying to decide what order I want to go in. Um, one of the things that's like really interesting then is we get then this sort of introduction to the aristocracy and to this idea about, I mean, cause remember everything that Grace and her brothers are doing is a crime, right? Like there are these underlords, you know, of, of, of Covent Garden, but it's also clear on page that the Duke is the biggest criminal. Yes. I think it's really interesting to have you really explicitly sort of put something on page about how powerful and wealthy men are not held to the same standards when it comes to lawbreaking. And that feels very now as well. There's a lot of today in this book, obviously. I mean, how can there not be? Um, There's a lot. There's like a parliament. There's like a C plot line that's driving sort of things forward a little bit, sort of gently, gently running the engine um, that is set in Parliament um, because there's this is right around the time. So Victoria has just become queen um, and it is right around the time that um, Parliament is starting to think about enacting laws, uh, criminalizing prostitution and sex mm-hmm. work. And um, there is a real kind of sense that the freedom that is that has over the last, you know, however many years been afforded to both women and marginalized people of all of all kinds um, is a threat to dominant culture, to cishet white men. Um, This is where we'll start to see laws um, criminalizing sodomy. Um, laws criminalizing, like I said, sex work, like there are worse and, and other ways that, you know, parliament is trying to keep people down, right? Women are not going to get the vote for a long, long time in, in, until the 1900s, right? In England. So, um, there, so it just felt really like real that, you know, Victoria is queen and everything's kind of going haywire, um, so, and then on top of it, yeah, this Duke, the father Duke, they're, they're, you know, all the hero's father is a, a monstrous hero. And then Ewan has done this terrible thing over the last two books. And granted, he has had reason for it in, in his mind, reason for it. If you could, if there can be a reason for killing people, Ewan has had it. Um, however, um, the reality is that he has killed people. And over the course of three books, it has been said over and over again, like, we can't yeah. touch him. Like, the dukedom protects money, power, title. These these protect men. Yeah. And we are seeing, and like, and literally, like, two weeks ago, I watched that Jeffrey Epstein um, documentary on Netflix. And it, there was the whole piece about Prince Andrew. And it's just like, there's no, like, yeah, untouchable changed. men. Right. right? Right. Um, And so Ewan has to learn over the course of this book that, like, his power is corrupting. It's risky. It's I mean, it's a risky choice to make when you're writing historical romance right now. Too bad, readers, you're doing it wrong because it's not historical fiction. Right. Historical romance is about now. Um, just like any other, just like any romance. But what I mean by that is also like Dukes are really popular and they're popular for a reason. Like I've written a thousand of them and there we've talked to, we've talked for hours about what the shorthand is of a Duke. And I'm certainly going to write a Duke again. This is not like me saying like Dukes are over. (laughs) Dukes are over. Like, no, I love a Duke, but I like a self-aware Duke. (laughs) One of the tropes I've seen kind of recur throughout a few of your books and in historical romance in general is that one back to like sort of there's like a creative impulse with grace and chase to like make something. I'm going to make the casino. I'm going to make the brothel. I'm going to make lives better. Whereas often for men, it's like destructive. And one of the ways it's destructive is no heirs. I'm not 
king has this, right? No heirs. The the bare knuckle bastards have this, right? To punish your father. Punish your father, right? I'm going to put an end to it. Obviously, it's a trope we see in historicals a lot. It's about undoing the idea that children are commodities, right? Rather than objects of love. And this is something men in particular, I think, are socialized to believe. But I think that you really, like bring that to an end in this series. Like, I, it'd be hard for me to imagine you tackling this trope again. Yeah, I don't, I mean, I'm certainly not planning to in the next uh, yeah. series. And I think it's because, like, there's a real clear delineation between heirs and children in this book. Yes. And heirs, yeah, because heirs are money and power entitled to. And children are just... The people you love. Right. Children are your family. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I um, I, th- I feel like now we have to say, like, <laughs> spoilers from here on out. Like, because I can't talk about this without sort of revealing some of what's going on. Um, so if you have not read the book and you plan to yeah. and care, <laughs> <laughs> um, don't listen anymore. to children let's talk about you and your long break mm. how inspired was this by the player almost entirely <laughs> look it's inspired that choice like she does that with um she does that in the player to move him off page and heal to both show him in trauma and in triumph mm-hmm and it's a really thoughtful choice. Um, for me, it was important. I needed to move time forward because there was no way. Look, it wasn't It wasn't like I knew that this was what was going to happen. It's not like, oh, I read the player and then I was like, that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> Got it. But, um, but I, I had been noodling how I was going to make them fall in love right away. For a long time, right? Because the, at the end of Brazen, she saves him, right? Like, yeah. the timing on this, the, t- the Brazen ends, and then the, and Daring picks up, like, four days later or five days later. So it's like, you know, Ewan has just exploded the docks. Hattie is still on page in the, you know, Death in the, yeah, with the doctor. Um, and so, and Grace has just healed him. So I couldn't conceive of her just being like, and now we're going to, I'm in a place, a mental place to fall in love. It wasn't actually about him at all. It was like, how does Grace fall in love with him when he's literally just blown up the docks? And how do, and also Wit and Wit and Devil have, it's a romance between four, right? You have to bring them all back together, right? Yeah, like this couldn't end without Wit and Devil forgiving him, too. And coming to terms with their own... Yeah, and without them being reunited as brothers. I think that's why the Statler, Waldorf, whatever their names are, are so important here. Like, we see them each in their own book, but seeing them together in this way, we realize something's missing for them, too. Right? Yeah, and there's a heartbreak for Ewan every time he sees them together, too. Like, these are... You know, these guys love each other. Like, these are brothers. Mm -hmm. I'm not. And they could have been mine. um, If not for the choices that he'd made. So, uh, I forget what the question was. But, oh, the year off. So, yeah. So, he, so there's this fight. Grace basically, like, knocks him out with, by saying, like, you killed me. She's dead. Mm -hmm. Get out. Don't ever come back. And, um, and then I was like, I need a year. I need, I probably, truthfully, probably we needed more than a year, but whatever. Yeah. I was like, I need a year. And I need that year to be him, like, figuring out how to win her. Yeah. And then I was like, oh, this is the player. Truly, it's not the player. It's just that one year. (laughs) Yeah. I, you know, I do think time has meaning. But in this Mm -hmm. case, case, I I agree with Kate. Like, one year just means a lot of 
a lot of time. We use it to mark. It's just right. Time. It doesn't matter. It's just time. It doesn't matter if it's one year or three years. It's it's time. Right. I mean, what it needed to be was a lifetime of coming to terms with, with what he'd done and how wrong he'd been and how much he wanted to win her back. Well, and I kind of like that we didn't have to deal with it that much. He just he just took care. Yeah. Of it. He just went I mean, away I forget what the line is, but it's something like he came back and he looked, you know, tan and bigger. He slept. And, like he'd slept. You know, slept. like and that was that. Like he because he has been strung out for two books. Yeah, of course. I mean, for he's 20 been years for decades. A wild-eyed animal for two books. And then there was a lot of like, I mean, I went through a lot of different versions of this book in theory. I didn't write a lot of different versions, but I I sort of noodled a lot of like, well, maybe he is, he does come, he is feral. Like maybe she needs to like, you know, tame him. And then I was like, fuck that. She, he needs to do his own fucking work. Like women are not here to tame men right now. I'm not <laughs> here for it. But like, what's interesting going back to like how we iterate on the world, like, I might that I really like a like taming heroin tames feral hero book, but like and so maybe you know five years ago or I maybe would have written that right, right. But that was not going to happen here. Like so, Ewan goes away and he does his own work and he comes back and it's clear he's done his own work. And I think that that's really important to her. It's important to us as readers, right? I think yeah. that's why. But that's also why, like, the placement of the fight is so important, right? I think, we, you know, it's tempting to think that that fight could have been, like, the low moment of the book, right? Where they fight. And you're like, no, yeah. that's the beginning, right? That's just clearing the fucking decks. Yeah. And I think it, that's the, another part about what makes the fight so interesting is not just that it happens and how it happens, but where it happens. Yeah. Yeah, on her turf, which is also his turf. Ironically, like, I mean, he's there's that. I mean, there were a lot of choices that were made, right? Like, I knew from the beginning that Covent Garden was where Ewan was from. Yeah. Not where anyone else was from. Where he was from. Yeah. Um, And so ultimately, when he comes back, he has to reckon with Grace. He has to reckon, reckon with his brothers and he has to reckon with his place. Yeah. And his roots. Speaking of that, this is like a bit of a departure, but a question I'm really interested in and I is you include a lot of um, mythology in your stories, right? There's a yes. lot of storytelling. And I actually talked to my friend Elizabeth about oh, this. She's our, our Latin teacher. Because I was like, can we, let's talk about this for a minute. Because I'm, and especially because I, just as you know, I went back and listened to all your books. I was like, oh, this is like really a through line. Now, every, you know, every book. Every yeah. book, right? And so there's a couple questions that are just sort of like, I don't know, writerly process ones, like, which comes first, right? The myth, or do you go then looking for the one that fits the story? I mean, here it's Apollo and Cyrene. Cyrene is the lion killer. I I mean, I love mythology. Um, And I I love, I mean, I love these stories. And often they are really, they have really tragic ends. Mm -hmm. So, um, but here are some things I really like. I really like the fact that um, in almost every myth has multiple tellings. Mm-hmm. So you're not beholden to like, One I'm going to retell Taming of the Shrew, right? And then you're like, well, I guess if I'm going to retell Taming of the Shrew and that's the overt thing, then I have to do it thought, like I have to do it in a careful way to make sure it really maps. Mm-hmm. Um, I like that mythology gives you this opportunity. Like it's true storytelling. It's like storytelling around the fire, mm-hmm. right? So it's like every every story has you know, four or five different ways of telling it. So I feel like I'm, I'm sort of, feels weird to say it, but like, it's part of the tradition yes. for you to take a myth, a myth and then retell it and twist it in some way. Sure. So all of these myths, I mean, all of them often, mo- I would say 90% of them end unhappily. Right. Yeah. I mean, at the end of, so Sirena, but Sirene's story is like, she's a lion killer. She's, she's supposed to be a girl. Like she's, you know, her father doesn't trust her, doesn't think that she's good enough um, to fight. She's a natural warrior. Um, She's strong enough to be, to go to war and to fight. And um, instead she um, is told that she has to watch the sheep 
and a lion comes and she kills the lion and Apollo sees it and is instantly in love with her for being the lion killer. And he gives her um, Libya. He gives her the fertile lands of Libya to be queen over um, because she won't marry him. He wants to take her home. He wants to marry her. And she's like, no, I'm being a... Being Apollo's wife is not it's like not my jam. I don't wanna do that. I'm afraid that great gift is not meant to be mine. And so he's like, Well then I guess I'll make you a queen. Yeah. And so there's like so there's I mean obviously there's a lot of parallelism to what Grace is and Grace's past and what Ewan loves about her and what everybody loves about her and how like she refuse Cyrene refuses to give refuses to back down like she knows what she needs in order to be happy and she chooses it and of course in the myth apollo leaves but in the book apollo doesn't leave like she gets she gets to have her cake and eat it too even though you made a marie antoinette joke in the book why are these aristocratic ladies (laughs) like dummies right (laughs) but just go back to the myth for a second it's both it's okay often it's you know, in the early days, it was so it was low hanging fruit of myth, right? It was like Simon's naked in front of the fire, and so it's like, well, of course he's like Hephaestus, like the god of flame, right? And then, but the, you know, and so that was sort of low hanging fruit, or like there's so much everybody loves Hades and Persephone, um, but the now I've done the low hanging fruit. And so now, like, about halfway through a manuscript, usually I start looking, like, I start reading through, like, old, I have tons of, like, retellings of myths on my bookshelves. Yeah. And I start looking. Remember, we talked about my rules of symbolism. I teach my students. The second one I teach them. So the first one is animals are always symbols. But the second is that, like, fairy tales and mythological figures are also symbols. Like, if they're in a book, it's, it's for a reason. It's for us to, like, make a connection. And sometimes it's just storytelling, right? I get that, too. But one of the things that I think is, like, really interesting at, like, a meta level, and you've talked a lot about, like, what it means to be now writing books in the Victorian era. And this is a point Elizabeth made because I was sort of noodling this over with her, which is this is a time in England where there's this huge resurgence of neoclassicism, but it's used as a cudgel, right? It's used to enforce whiteness and racism and sexism. And yet here you are using it in an opposite way. Right. So it's almost like classical mythology is corrective. It doesn't have to be used to know enforce- well, that's the magic of mythology is like there are like talk about a uh, talk about something that has no rules by virtue of what it is. Yeah. Right. And so you end up like I feel no. It's interesting because somebody there's a somebody wrote a paper on mythology in my books, mm. which is bizarre and wild um but somebody wrote a paper about about that about it and they came to me and they were like where do you find the versions that you put in your books and I told them this I was like I they're my versions like they're my retellings of the myths because I get to do it too like we Mm -hmm. these are stories that are so long-standing and they've been twisted and turned so many times. Like, fuck Homer. Write your own myth. Like, right. you know, I like to stay true to the text and then, like, you know, up update it. Which I feel is, like, what people were doing around the fire. But even in a lot of ways. Like, right, Madeline Miller Circe does it, I think, yes. in a really explicit way that I think is... There's a reason why they have sustained themselves, right? Like, they, why they've sustained. Like, they sure. still exist. People keep coming back to them. They're really kind of like, they're, they're, and these myths exist in all cultures, like retold in different ways at, in different, you know, around different fires all over the world. Right. Um, and I think that that's really fascinating. I mean, I try to keep to Western myth because I, that's, I feel like that's where I, I'm, you know, able to retell, but certainly there are myths from all over the world that are similar in many cases. Of course. Like, it's so foundational to, like, what it means to be human. Storytelling. Storytelling. Yeah. And, you know, it's sometimes you hear, like, oh, well, you know, narrative arc or, like, story structure is... Patriarchal you know, or whatever, right? <laughs> yeah, patriarchal or it comes from the canon or, you know... And I think, you know, partially it is, but certainly you can say that about the modern, modern story structure, but 
the reality is, it's like good storytelling comes from long before the written word. So like, and women sat around fires too. Before we wrap up, I have, um, there's a way in which this book is really explicitly claiming an idea that like the future is female, right? Which is something we say now. And that this is something that is feared, right? At that time and is also feared now. Yeah. They don't like that we are the future. Why is that a really important theme in all of your books? Hope. You have to believe that something comes of the fight. Mm. And so for me, I think there is a lot of anger about um, women and other, other people be, being the future, being, being what comes next, and hopefully being better. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of fear of that. And uh, I don't fear that. I long for it. And I think so to all my characters. Mm. Um, but there's certainly there's a moment uh, late in the book where Ewan says, like, why? Why would this right. all happen? Right? Because, you know, stuff happens. <laughs> and and he's confused. And he, he really honestly, like, he's just a dumb man. And yeah. he's like, I don't understand. Like, I don't understand why this would happen. Who why is do they it? Care? How? Right. And his instinct is like, who is it? Let me kill him. Right. right? <laughs> and she's like, you don't understand. It's not one. It's many. Like, yeah. They don't like it. They don't like that we ha- that I can build this club that women can have pleasure, that women can have identity and autonomy. They don't like it and they want it to be over. They want yeah. to end it. Yeah. They want to break us. Um and I think I mean this is sort of a bleak place to end, but like they do want to break us. Yeah. And I don't know. So I guess in romance like they don't get to break us in romance. No. No, they don't. We get to break them. Do we want to talk about, like, literally burning it down? Or should we leave that? This is a big spoiler. Big, 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 big spoiler. Spoiler. A really, <laughs> a, a really interesting conversation because we know, you know, you know, I love a grovel, right? And you yeah. one has to do some groveling, some personal groveling. But also, and this is a point Kate made, like we talked a lot about like sort of beasts grovel too, right? Like there's, there's groveling at many different levels. I have but, to think. I have to right? think it's okay. a second about what, pre, what beast grovel was. Yes. Yes. I got it. Right. You mean the talking at the end? Yeah. Right. And oh, also just beast. like her, her being, baby. I know, her being a, a like her baby. being like, I'm going to tie you to the mast and being, being like, okay. Um, <laughs> sounds fun, but also okay. Um, but I mean, it's like an individual grovel for misdeeds, whereas like what Kate pointed out, and I was like, it blew me away with such a brilliant point, is Ewan's grovel is is for like patriarchy itself. Yep. Right? It's for like literally getting everything just based on his, well, his not his real birth, but this birth, right? right. Like, so that has to be a real big, whew. I mean, also, patriarchy is shitty for men, too. Yes, and I think this book really proves that. And Ewan figures that out here. Yes. Like, uh, Devil and Wit had to figure it out in their books in certain ways, too. Mm-hmm. Like, they both have to come to terms with the fact that, like, they didn't win and it's okay. And Ewan has to come to terms with the fact that he did win and it's not okay. Right? And it was never okay. It never gave anybody the happiness that it was supposed to. Um, And I really, I mean, and so for me, it was like patriarchy, without patriarchy, like, we are all better if we burn it down. Yeah. Every one of us. Well, and that's, we say that a lot, like, when we talk about fighting, right? Like, when men figure out patriarchy is bad for them, too, they will help dismantle it, right? When white people figure out they are harmed by racism, they they will dismantle it. And I think that there's something, again, it's like a big risk, right, is to actually say in this book, I think, in an explicit way. And I think it goes back to my question about, like, heirs versus children, right, which is, like, if he's going to stick with his plan for revenge, right, no heirs, or, or stick with the dukedom, he harms, you know, if he keeps his birthright over his like what he truly wants as a person yeah that harms him it harms everyone yeah and his 
I think that what's interesting is that for a lot of the book, Ewan keeps the dukedom, Ewan's sort of perception of the dukedom is that it is security for others, right? Like he's working in, like he's showing up at parliament finally because Mm -hmm. he's working to combat these laws against sex work, right? Like he sees that the laws that are keeping Covent Garden and other um, areas of London that had um, less resources, that those laws were bad for everyone, Mm -hmm. right? And so in his mind, he's like, my power, I can use my power from within. Mm -hmm. And there's, I think, a point where Grace says, I know there's a point where Grace says like, no, like, Sometimes you have to work from without. And I think we see this so much right now, right? Like you can't, right? It's, I think it's Audrey Lord who says you cannot, something about like you can't fix the house using the master's tools. Yes. And so, you know, the idea, it really, this book like explicitly rejects the idea that people at the top working within the system can fix the system. I mean, we talk all the time about the difference between historical fiction and historical romance and how, like, everyone can add straight teeth and everybody can be happy. And, like, you know, we we are, like, the... the we are the world, the, we are the, the literature of fantasy and of hope, right? But sometimes there are real things, right? Like um, enslavement of people existed. Um, the, the, you know, the colonization the, the is rampant. Colonization right now, right? is real. Um, women can't vote. Um, you know, poverty is rampant. Like these kinds of things are real. And so um, I don't ever want to, I mean, certainly like, I don't ever want to pretend that those things don't exist in the books. And the reality is that Parliament was is about to, over the next yeah. 30 years, enact some real shit policies. Like, and pass some laws that are bad for everyone. Yeah. And so there just is no scenario where... Right. You can, in my mind, like, there's no scenario where you can be writing in the 1840s and writing a duke who's, like, powerful in parliament passing laws that, like, simply were not being passed. Um, while Victoria is colonizing the entire globe. Literally, the entire globe. And so, um, it's interesting because it's, it's going to be... Um, And maybe that's part of why I'm moving away from, you know, real aristocracy and like Mayfair ballrooms, because suddenly those ballrooms are they look very different. I mean, they maybe they don't look that different, but they they look different in my mind. Yeah. Well, you're on a collision course with real history. Right. And yeah. And that there's only so much leeway. There's only so much elasticity right in that i think in 2020 there is a lot less leeway than there was in you know 1985 yeah and it's important for us to be for historical romance novelists to be responsible in the way that we that we write the aristocracy so like like i said i'm not turning my back on aristocrats there are several aristocrats in the hell's bell series right um but they're gonna look different and they won't be ahistorical. I want to say that, too. Like, there were a lot of aristocrats in the 1800s who were like, fuck this shit. Well, always, right? There are always, always people who are like, yeah, I think this is bad. There were just many more who were like, no, this all works well for me and my estates. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the things moving forward that I'm really excited about, about Hell's Bells, we're not going to talk about it a lot, right, is... It's really the first time the entire framing device of a series is about women's relationships to each other. Yeah. And that seems pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, yeah. (laughs) It is. I mean, I'm really excited. I'm really excited about writing a girl gang. I'm really excited about writing power in the hands of women. I'm excited about writing women men fear in some ways. Mm -hmm. I'm excited about writing men who there's one book where, you know, the hero is like a a good ally. Like, mm-hmm. and I think, I mean, hopefully there's more than one, but there's one where it's like, you know, they need him to be a good ally yeah. and he's already there. And I, I'm excited about writing that. Like, so I think there are, but at the same time, it's also going to be really fun. Yeah. I, I mean, we talk so much about how I like sisterhood and... 
here are four, five women who, you know, are, are going to, they're going to be a strong sisterhood. And that's good. We all need, we need our, we need our gang. We do. Sarah, is there anything I didn't ask that you really want to talk about? No, you know, that's Jen, my favorite question. this is so nice. I really enjoyed this. I was a little nervous. I was like, oh God, am I going to remember? Am I going to be able to talk about it thoughtfully? Um, no, I would just say like, I'm really happy this series. I'm, I am happy with this book. I'm scared of it. And I obviously hope you all love it very much. But like, this is the story I knew I had to tell. I loved it. So... <laughs> Audience of one. (laughs) I think it's a powerhouse. I'm really excited for people to read it, too. Well, I hope you all love it. Um, You know, I'm going to say the thing that authors uh, hate saying, which is if uh, you have time and inclination, please leave a review for it somewhere. Um, That's how you make sure that um, publishers publishers really care about reviews. So um, if you read a book that you love in general, not just mine, yeah, drop a review somewhere if you Well, Sarah, thank you. Thank you. You can go back to being my co-host at a later date. All right. And <laughs> next week, well, I'm going to be your co-host right now. Next week we have Steve Amadown, right? Steve Amadown is joining us, which is super exciting. We had a great talk about old categories. Um, and then I, th- I think that's it. There will be episodes dropping over the next few weeks, but they will be um, like there. We're doing a live episode with learning uh, the tropes with Aaron and Clayton from learning the tropes. That'll drop over the next couple of weeks. Um, and the audio, at least if you missed the live by now, we've had the live um, anyway. So when you sometimes you'll turn on your, your podcasting app, there'll be a new one from us. But we are back the first week of August. Uh, don't forget to go to our website and click the merch button to get buttons and stickers and other sundries there are transcripts going up there's lots of fun stuff on the website to keep you busy while we're gone happy summer burn something down but try the patriarchy do what you can (laughs) to burn the patriarchy down (laughs) bye Hi, Jen and Sarah. I'm Jane from Utah. Um, you can find me online on Twitter and Insta at the main Jane. Um, and I love your podcast. Huge fan. The book that blooded me is Ice Blue by Ann Stewart. Um, I believe she wrote it in 2007, um, but I became newly reacquainted with romance in 2015, which is when I read this book and subsequently devoured as much romance as I could. Uh, So this book, Ice Blue, is equal parts delightful and problematic. Uh, There are a few issues of cultural appropriation, um, but it has all of my favorite tropes. It's plus-size heroine, she's competent and educated, and the hero is tall and sexy assassin, and he is biracial, and it's an enemies to lovers. And um, I build this book to friends as kind of romance's answer to Yakuza adventure films, and it is pretty bonkers. Um, there is a cult. There's honor killings, lots of explosions, sword fights. And um, Anne Stewart, the author, she really did her research on Japanese culture because half of the book does take place in Japan. And so you do, you know, you do learn a lot about that culture. Um, and there is a follow-up book called Fire and Ice, which incredibly is even crazier. So that's the book that blooded me. And I love your show. And, Sarah, I am so excited for uh, Daring and the Duke to come out this summer. So, yeah. See you later. Bye.